Nobody likes to call businesses to be stuck on hold listening to crappy hold music. If you run a business when your customers need to reach you, they'd prefer to text rather than call or email. TextLine is a web-based software that lets you and your customers exchange text messages. When you sign up at TextLine.com, you'll get a new business phone number in your local area code that your customers can use to text you and your team. TextLine offers a 30-day free trial, but you can get a bonus free month if you sign up at TextLine.com slash castofkings. That's TextLine.com slash castofkings. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series, Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson, and I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Not that it matters this season, uh, but welcome to the show, uh, oh, ladies and gentlemen. Oh. Oh, it matters. Oh, it does matter. It does matter. We're going to talk about that in a second. But if you're just tuning into this podcast for the first time, what we do here is we will uh, discuss every episode of Game of Thrones in detail and spoil everything through this week's episode. This week, that would be Season 6, Episode 1, The Red Woman. Uh, And we will not spoil anything from future shows. uh, And that includes anything from uh, the next time on Preview on HBO. Uh, It also includes anything from future books or anything you might know from the books. Now, uh, Jonah Robinson, this uh, series has theoretically surpassed the books in terms of the timeline. So what possible spoilers could there be? Well, you know, I'm glad you, glad you asked, Dave. Uh, we've, we've had this question over on our Facebook page. You know, our, our policy has always been no book spoilers, and that's a little foggier this season, I think. And I will just say I know that Game of Thrones is going to be revisiting old book stuff. And I still consider that a book spoiler. Mm. So that's so, so you're seeing stuff in previous books that has not made its way onto the show yet, right? Right. They're yeah. going back a little bit. And so I'd say that's a book spoiler and not on the table. And also, you know, production spoilers, you know, production spoilers around meeting set photos, casting news, that kind of stuff. That's ramped up to a higher level this year than, than ever before, probably because of the whole Jon Snow situation. So that's off limits, too. Mainly, think of Dave as your, you know, just really innocent, sweet friend that you want to protect from the world. And don't spoil him about anything, please. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much, John Robinson. And yeah, of course, you're talking about basically what people email into us at acastofkings at gmail.com and also uh, comment at facebook.com slash acastofkings. Uh, those are the best places to reach us. So again, facebook.com slash the cast of kings where you can comment on every single episode of uh, this podcast and also uh, our email, a cast of kings at gmail.com. Really appreciate all those emails. One question I wanted to ask you before we get these festivities started today, Joanna, is you know, I read somewhere on the internet about how one of the reasons this season is so disappointing for book readers is not simply that they can't be smug anymore, which is what I always assumed. But rather that a lot of book readers still find the book to be a superior work uh, of you know art than the show. And thus being spoiled about book plot points before they can actually read the book is incredibly disappointing to them. Do you share this opinion? Oh, um, I know that there are some people who are taking it to an extreme that they won't even watch the show this season because they would prefer to read what George R. R. Martin has to say. Um, and I mean, you could just you, if they've been with this the book series since it started, you know, decades ago, 
and that's how they want to continue with it. I, I can respect that. It's going to be hard for them to like, you know, keep keep on track with that. But but I, I kind of have some grudging respect for that. Um, I I think that this sometimes the show is better and sometimes the book's better, and we're going to be talking about that in this episode specifically with the Dorn plot line, guys. Uh. But uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> But, Wait, uh, I, I don't know how that plotline could be improved in any way, Joanna. So oh, I will tell you, I promise. But um, yeah, it, it is interesting. It, it's going to be interesting to read George R. R. Martin's books because what both I take everything anyone involved in this production says with a, with a bag of salt. But um, what, <laughs> what both Martin and Weiss and Benny off the showrunners have said is that you know the, the seasons are just going to continue to diverge. From the books. And so just because something happens on the show doesn't mean it's going to happen in George R. R. Martin's books. I really don't know how true that is, but I will be intrigued to see how different these two uh, stories end up being. Yeah, uh, it should be really interesting. And hopefully George R. R. Martin can finish that book in the near future. So uh, book readers don't have to be too far behind uh, when the show heads into season seven. Anyway, uh, I think that's all we have for pre-show stuff. So uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention is just that uh, we are so incredibly grateful to our Kickstarter backers for backing us this season. Uh, it, it is amazing, Joanna. I was just gonna say, like, I'm not exa- uh, no exaggeration. It is amazing the amount of support that uh, listeners have shown for this podcast, and uh, we really appreciate it. And so, just want to say, without you guys, we wouldn't be doing this show. Thank you so, so much. It, it is uh, so incredibly gratifying that uh, you're willing to support us and, and uh, all the work that we put into this. So uh, we have a few sponsors this season, but primarily it is the listeners that are making this podcast possible. So, so thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to reading and occasionally butchering your names in thanks on this podcast. Um, <laughs> so let us dive straight into this episode, episode one from season six called The Red Woman. Uh, and we used to make a lot of hay out of like what happened in the opening uh, credit sequence. This uh, episode, nothing special, right? Just a lot of places we've already seen. I don't think there's anything new, was there? Did Not you that I noticed, yeah. no. Yeah, so everything kind of standard. Uh, and head right into a really uh, impressive, continuous shot at Castle Black that kind of uh, goes into uh, the area where Jon Snow was brutally murdered, perhaps rightfully so, by awesome children like Ollie. Um, <laughs> so it begins. Already. I mean, I Already. This, so uh, those of you who've listened to this podcast for a long time know that uh, Joanna and I championed different subreddits. Uh, my subreddit was uh, ollierules.reddit.com, and uh, Joanna's was fuck Ollie. Uh, and fuck Ollie shockingly uh, got more uh, re- readers and subscribers uh, I posted something in Ollie Rules uh, l- last night oh did you? I did I did <laughs> here's my post in the Ollie Rules subreddit uh, did everyone see Ollie in tonight's episode of Game of Thrones dude was acting like a boss all up in that Castle Black meeting yeah I was part of this as Proud Look seemed to say Ollie Rules am I right guys? Uh, that post was downvoted into oblivion almost immediately and <laughs> has zero points as of this week so kind of sad anyway uh, uh all right so joanna was your heart pumping during this opening scene were you like are we going to get the Snow revival right now what was what was going through your mind at this point 
Uh, I know. I actually did not expect it to happen in this episode. Um, and so I was just excited to be back. And I thought it was amazing. The the, the use of Ghost, his direwolf in this scene, I mm. think just really made it so haunting. Just hearing Ghost howling and scrabbling at the door. And um, someone pointed out to me that it's almost exactly um, – the way that Rob's direwolf behaved at the Red Wedding because he was locked up in like a very similar kennel behind a very similar door and the shots are pretty similar. So it was a really upsetting callback to that. Yeah. Because Jon Snow's definitely dead, guys. Definitely dead. <laughs> and he is not coming back. Uh, well, <laughs> it's it's interesting that uh, they decided to just leave his body there, I guess, as a warning. Like just put Traitor there and he's dead. Like they wanted to send a signal. Uh, either way, Davos finds the body, takes him inside with Ed and uh, other Jon Snow supporters, uh, and that's that. Uh, then we see Melisandre, and uh, I was she- well. I was happy to see Ed Dolores Ed, who's Jon's friend, because he was missing from the mutiny, and I was just I really needed to know where Ed stood on all of this and and what he thought, and I was happy to see him. A firm loyalist. Of course he would be. I just, you know, he was missing from that whole thing last last season. So I wanted to see him. The Castle Black stuff I thought was really strong this episode overall. And uh, I think a, a lot of it is because it, it just deals with the fallout, like e- immediate fallout of what happens as a result of the actions of the season finale last uh, last year. And so you get this whole situation with Davos finding the body and trying to figure out, like, you, it, it, the stuff about Jon Snow having men loyal to him is really well built up in the show. Like, that's something the show has done very well up until now. And so I totally believe that there would be people really pissed off that, that Jon Snow had been killed and, uh, and want to mutiny and that Davos would be able to find some strength there. So uh, anyway, Melisandre comes in, talks about Jon uh, fighting the flames at Winterfell. Uh, is this foreshadowing John Robinson? What do you think? Could be. I mean, Melisandre seems convinced that she was wrong, and Davos is saying, no, Davos is taking the role of uh, HBO, and being like, uh, no, he's dead, for real. He's dead, he's not coming back. <laughs> Melisandre's like, but there's so much more story for him. Uh, so yeah, it could be. She said she saw him fighting at Winterfell. That being said, we've seen Melisandre's prophecies be wrong numerous times before, have we not? Um, you know, Stannis's corpse would would say that that would be true. Also, Shireen's and Salise's. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot yeah. of corpses that prove Melisandre <laughs> wrong, but I I am so eager to find out whether or not you're right about this, John Robinson. I, I don't necessarily doubt it. I don't I don't think you're wrong because uh, you're usually right when it comes to the show. I would say the overwhelmingly vast majority of the time. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just following this uh, story and whether Jon Snow's alive from, from the outside, quote-unquote, from not being a book reader. I'm just uh, really, really curious whether or like how they're going to pull this off, especially because th- this is what everyone is talking about uh, around the show. So, anyway, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you have Thorne holding a council uh, and a council meeting tr- explaining to everyone what happened. I like that they had him deal with the consequences of this uh, and trying to say, like, explain – Hey, we all killed him. Like, literally, we all killed him. And we all took a stab at him. Ollie's there, and, you know, he's the symbol of one of the reasons why they killed him. Uh, And I'm sure you were a big fan of him showing up again, uh, so we don't even need to talk about it, Joanna. And uh, if I had like rotten fruit, I would have thrown it at the scene at that moment. <laughs> what's What's nice is that they did a little callback 
to or call out to the books with the name drop of Bowen Marsh, who's a character that you, like no show watcher is tracking Bowen Marsh on the show, but he's an important character in the book, sort of like the Ollie character, like someone who was close to John and then like betrays him. Uh, so they name dropped him, but the camera still focused on Ollie's stupid, stupid face. So, yeah. <laughs> but okay. In, in all seriousness, okay. Yeah. In, in all yeah. seriousness, yes. Uh, don't you think Ollie serves as a decent representation of, uh, you know, why John's viewpoint was so objectionable to people? I, I like. I understand I mean, no, you I hating do, the I character. Do. Yeah. No, I do. I really <laughs> do hate Ollie. I really hate that character. No offense to the actor who plays him, but when you know Thorne is talking about, he gave the land back to the wildlings who had ravaged it. And then you focus on Ollie and you remember that his, his family best, was brutally murdered. The best archer in his village and his family was murdered. Um, I hate that kid, but that is a good point. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so it's not completely useless. Even if the character, even if he as a person, Ollie is useless, like the character, uh, you know, in the show is not completely useless. So. No, I mean, I just, I think they whiffed it. Like, I get what they were going. Like, it's not that I can't see the bones of their story structure that they're trying to tell. I just think that they created this character that just didn't. I mean, I'm not alone in this, Dave. Really? What One gajillion <laughs> fuck all these subscribers can't be wrong. This character has not been successful. Mm. And I don't know, like, since he's a show invented character, I don't know how soon or how gruesomely they're going to kill him. But... Um, if Roz is any indication, it's going to be pretty bad. So we'll yeah. see. Well, just so people know, the Ollie Rules subreddit has 216 subscribers, and the Fuck Ollie subreddit has 12,285 <laughs> subscribers. So, uh, you know, I'm always into David and Goliath stories. Like, I, I feel like the Ollie Rules uh, defenders will win the day. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> Ed and Davos. Hatch a plan on how to fight back against Alistair Thorne. Uh, not, like, I guess their objective is simply to take control of Castle Black, right? Like, what are, what are the implications of that, do you think? It's funny. I kept rewatching the scene because, you know, they seem very concerned with guarding John's body, and I'm not sure, you know, in the context of the show, I'm not sure why. In the context of, I believe Jon Snow is going to come back, like, right. I get why they would need to protect his corpse, but in the context of the show, I'm not sure why they would protect his body because they just left it in the courtyard they're not interested in like cutting it into chunks and feeding it to the dogs or anything like that like yeah. ramsey um but uh ed says thorn should pay you know a couple times and so i feel like ed's goal is to like kill the it's just years. revenge like if there's yeah. no nothing broader other than revenge on the right mind. yeah yeah uh, but, but Davos is being like smart about it, and and Ed's like everyone in this room is gonna die, and Davos is like, or how about we try to have a plan? Maybe. Yeah, that, I, would be- I, I, that is curious why they're trying to hang on to the corpse. It does feel like something the script told them to do versus something that's character driven. Right. Right. Uh, so I'm glad no one pointed out like, hey, we got to hold on to the corpse and keep it preserved and in one piece, um, because events at the end of this episode might indicate what will happen to the corpse. Uh, so they kind of they kind of did some hand-waving there. And honestly, Jonah, I think hand-waving is how I describe a lot of things that happened this episode. Uh, and we can get to that. Uh, when I say hand-waving, what I mean by that is they're waving their hands and then voila, X thing is true without even needing to really explain it. No real plot holes in this episode. I would say plot gaps. Yeah. Uh, and we can get to that in a bit. So... We cut to uh, Ramsey mourning Miranda, who has uh, been uh, killed by Theon last year. 
Uh, and he has this actually quite touching speech uh, about how oh, he first wait, found her. Sorry, yep. sorry, really quickly. Ed says he's off to do something. What do you think Ed is off to do? So Davos says, uh, you, like, you're not the only ones loyal to Jon Snow. Right. I think who he's implying is that the wildlings whose lives Jon Snow saved at Hardhome uh, also owe a debt to Jon Snow. And so I think he's going to go get the wildlings. But you're right. That was never explicitly said on the show. So that would be my guess, too, right? That he's going to get the wildlings. Reminder, the wildlings have a giant also presumably still with them maybe i don't know um so then the odds are thorn and his like men with their crossbows and then on john's team you have a direwolf a witch a wildling army and some giants so i i think i know if, who my if, money's on if ed gets back in time i think team john snow is is uh, looking good if ed gets back on time and melisandre like snaps out of her bummer then their team is strong so. Do you know what happens with the Jon Snow storyline at this point? You don't, right? No, no, not specifically. No. Okay. Wow. This is so. This is so exciting, Joanna. Um, it's, <laughs> we're both in the I same know, place of not I, knowing things. No, that's not true. I know plenty. I okay. just don't. You know. Oh, you're just being. You're just being polite when you say. No, that. no. I just don't know <laughs> some specifics. Yeah. I gotcha. Okay. Cool. Well, we'll see if Ed makes it back in time with the Wildlings. So yeah, as I was mentioning, we cut to Ramsey morning Miranda, and he gives a very touching speech that makes us realize, hey, sociopaths can have feelings too, kind of, uh, before suggesting that she gets fed to the dogs, because you don't want to waste that good meat out in the uh, wintry wilderness there. Mm. Uh, so uh, then Roos Bolton has a conversation with Ramsey, where he's pretty pissed that Sansa and Theon are gone, or mostly Sansa, because she was supposed to bear... Uh, Ramsey and Air, and if uh, that didn't work out, then the fallback plan, uh, or vice versa, was going to be that Roose Bolton and Lady Walda had uh, a baby together that they hoped was going to be uh, a male heir, right? That's close. Okay. Um, I will say that they needed a Stark, like specifically a Stark, to legitimize their claim to Winterfell, right? So Sansa was really valuable for that. And yeah, they, you know, if... Ramsey had a child with Sansa, then that child would be a Stark-ish, and that would further cement their claim. Yeah, Roose having a baby with Walda is like, is him mentioning that is like him threatening Ramsey because right. he's legitimized Ramsey as his heir. But but if he has a son with Walda, like that guy, that that male heir could be you know actually take on the Bolton fortune. So it's not so much like that's the fallback plan. It's like that's Ramsey's worst nightmare. Right, is right. that yeah. Walda has a male baby. Gotcha, yeah. Uh, I, I, I did understand that. Sorry if I didn't convey that correctly. Uh, but okay. yeah, uh, you know, they, he gives him that very uh, apprehensive look at the end. You know, Ramsey looks at him and is like, oh, you're threatening me. I guess I better get that woman back so we can get that air going, right? So, uh, so I did understand that. But uh, the Walda-Bolton unification air situation would just not be as strong as the Bolton-Stark uh, uh, you know, air situation, correct? Right, just because, um, as they mentioned last season, there are a bunch of northern houses up, you know, around Winterfell, between Winterfell and the Wall, that sort of thing, that are loyal, that will only respond to the Starks. We saw that Stannis was trying to rally houses last season, and they said, you don't have a Stark, which is why he wanted Jon Snow fighting with him, part of the reason why. They were like, you don't have a Stark, so we won't follow you. 
Like they're very loyal to the Starks, despite the fact that the Bolton banner is flying over Winterfell. So gotcha. So then the show does some hand waving here, Joanna, and we cut to Theon and Sansa already on the run. Uh, and uh, I guess hey, they survived that huge jump. You know, like is it? Uh, there is were it? pillow pillowy snowbanks around the <laughs> Winterfell. It's oh. literally exactly the same distance that Miranda fell. And she died horribly. But Miranda uh, fell on cobblestones yes. and they fell on soft snow. Yeah, so. yeah I guess yeah. Uh, that explains everything. Um, so anyway, fair enough. Theon and Sansa, they're on the run. Uh, and they have this really touching moment where they embrace. Uh, and Theon says, hey, I'm going to uh, go distract them. You run away. And uh, oh, what, what, powerful mo- several powerful moments in this episode. That was one of them when... Uh, you know, Theon was for a long time basically a Stark child. I mean, he was always different. He was always a ward, but uh, they grew up together. And for them to finally be able to embrace on like their own terms, you know, for the first time, it just felt like a, a catharsis almost. Especially after all that Sansa's been through. Uh, and then Theon, and all that Theon did, yeah, <laughs> all all that or didn't do to subject her to the horrible, you know, things that happened to her last season. No, I meant more like uh, sacking her ancestral home. Oh, that yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that stuff, and then burning those those innocent people. Yeah, and, you yeah, know, that, that, you know. Well, uh, no, but it was touching. <laughs> I thought it was touching to watch them embrace. It's like watching Theon's humanity come back, and to watch him sort of slip into. You know, we'll get into this a little more, but almost like an advisor role for Sansa, it seemed like, you know, because as much as he's like in the lead, helping her, telling her about the dogs, stuff like that, he's still like, she's still seems like the lady and he the servant, you know? And so to watch him do that with her and remember sort of he had kind of that role with Rob Stark in the earlier seasons uh, is, yeah, it's very touching. So then Theon goes, sacrifices himself, uh, and you know the the only way they could have gotten out of this situation is uh Brienne and Pod coming to save the day uh and they do and i thought the fight scene was pretty good actually like uh i feel like pod's been training yeah <laughs> like i feel like the entire time brian was watching that candle pod was working on his mounted fencing skills yeah, uh, he did. He did a good job. He did a good job. Uh, Brienne owns everyone, as we love seeing her do, and so that's pretty cool. Uh, and then offers her uh, kind of services to uh, uh, Sansa, like her loyalty. They do this kind of uh, knight oath, the the Westerosian equivalent of a of a knight oath thing, right? Where uh, it seems like there's a script for both of them, and Sansa doesn't really know the script and needs to be reminded of it, uh, and. Uh, that was also very touching because Brienne has been, you know, looking for Sansa for a really long time, and uh, Sansa has never really had the chance to kind of have her own agency and and make decisions for herself. Last season, as uh, as was her destiny to do, and seeing her like accept Brienne into her house, as it were, uh, I thought was uh, pretty powerful. What do you think, Lady Sansa? I offer my services once again. I will shield your back and keep your counsel and give my life for yours if need be. I swear it by the old gods and the new. And I vow that you shall always have a place by my hearth and... 
Meat and mead at my table. Meat and mead at my table. And I pledge to ask no service of you that might bring you dishonor. I swear it by the old gods and the new. Arise. Yeah, so this was a... You mentioned that this sounds like a vow that's used a lot. We saw Catelyn and Brienne... It's it's not identical, but they did a very similar um, vow back in season two, episode five. So yeah, to watch Sansa do stuff her mother did is is just really emotional. It was very emotional for me. But also to watch Sansa be surrounded by Theon, who we feel is just genuinely on her side. Pod, who's just sweetness and lies personified. Brienne, who's been trying her damnedest to help Sansa. You know, she's been... Stuck at King's Landing with evil pe- people plotting against her, under the guide of Littlefinger, who's the worst, over at Winterfell with the Boltons. <laughs> like, to see her finally surrounded by good guys yeah. was so uplifting. Very gratifying, um, yeah. Yeah, really great. Um, and, yeah, that's all I want to say about that. Oh, some people are wondering, when Bran went to fight the Bolton men, where all of Ramsay's dogs went? <laughs> That was and one it of the is a plot good yeah. question. Yeah. So so <laughs> Ramsey and his men had a bunch of dogs with them. Yeah. And uh, they show up, and then when Brienne fights them, the dog she doesn't kill any dogs. You know. So where'd the dogs go? Um, there is actually a thread on the Game of Thrones Reddit that goes into each of these quote unquote plot holes and uh, essentially justifies all of these decisions. The justification for that decision was, hey, we've never, you know, Ramsey had. Uh, train these dogs to run after prisoners and kill them, but uh, they'd never been in a real fight before, probably. And so uh, when the going got tough, they probably just ran away. That I think was, that's uh, just entirely not true because we've seen those dogs rip <laughs> um, a girl apart before. So Well, but she, that's the thing, Joanna. She was completely helpless. Like, they, they never faced anyone they like also- they ran off the entire, like, all of Theon, Theon's sister and all the Ironborn men. Like, the hounds chased them down to the shore. That's how ferocious they are. I, I am less bothered by the dogs going away <laughs> and more bothered by, like, how did Brienne know to find Sansa there? I guess she's just really good at tracking, you know? It's just well, she of, was uh, in the same woods. Yeah, they're in the same area and maybe uh, she saw and these horses. And she heard the hounds? Yeah, she heard the hounds. She's like, okay, that's probably Sansa for reasons I can't comprehend, uh, let's go follow them. Yeah, that's that's not a huge. It's not a huge problem what I'm bringing. I'm not saying that killed the episode for me or anything like that. It's just kind of there's a lot of kind of convenient little developments like that. That each one of the by themselves is not a big deal. Add them all up, it kind of struck rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, it, sounds, really, I, it sounds like I it didn't bother you at all. No, I mean I don't really care about the dogs. Uh, what I <laughs> what I will say, uh, let's just pretend that the Kettlemaster Winterfell had put out a freshly steaming plate of Miranda and the dog smelled it and ran home. <laughs> yeah? Gr- gross enough for you? That okay. is That's horrible. That's my explanation. Yeah. That is horrible. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of hand-wavy plot points, Jamie arriving at King's Landing. <laughs> um, and, you know, not, not this moment, but I'll get to it in a second. Uh, so Jamie's boat arrives and Cersei is so psyched. Uh, and I remember what you said in last week's episode of this podcast, Joanna, when you said, hey, it's really nice to be able to root for Cersei again. Uh, and 
you know, like, yeah, you really want her to do well. And then uh, we had just watched the shame scene from last season and uh, seeing her run across the courtyard and then stand uh, at the boat dock uh, on the beach, the whole spectrum of human emotions passes through her face in 30 seconds. And it is incredible acting without any words whatsoever uh, and really well done. Uh, Anything you want to say about this scene? I think my favorite small touch was when we first see Cersei's from the back of her head and she's just kind of touching her short hair, you mm. know, to like remind us all that she went through, she's been through the shit. Uh, yeah. And I thought Lena Keaty was amazing and I was intrigued to see the mountain out there with her, like the Sir Robert Strong, I guess, goes everywhere she goes, including down to the docks to see her, see her daughter. So, yeah. Do you ever watch those inside the episode uh you know little snippets after the show yeah yeah uh so my favorite quote from that this episode was david benioff saying cersei has had a rough couple of months (laughs) (laughs) you don't say david benioff uh yeah i mean after the the shaming last uh, season and then her daughter dying horribly uh or her finding out about it this episode it's been pretty bad for cersei lannister and we i think we have maximum sympathy for her so uh, I mean, there are still plenty of people who are rooting against her, to be clear, because she's done terrible things. Yes. But I think you're right that she is the most sympathetic she could possibly be right now. I mean, it's similar to Sansa. I mean, we want to, we so desperately want to see Sansa win because she's been beaten so long. I feel like she was beaten a little too much. We didn't need to see all of that. But, like, these underdogs, I mean, and right now we're watching, we're going to get to this, but we're watching Arya get the stuffing beat out of her. You know, we're watching these people just get as low as they can possibly go so you can feel good about watching them pull themselves back up. Yeah. Uh, if they do do that, or if they will if just die, they who knows? Do if they do, we don't yeah. know. Do you know the outcome of the Cersei Jamie plotline, by the way? Or I, basically, every question, every time you're gonna ask me this question, I'm gonna say I know some things. I see. Okay. Okay. No, that's fair enough. That's I, fair enough. I know some things. Yeah. All right. All right. Then I then I shall stop asking you that question. <laughs> I uh, mean, unless you like hearing me say that. Uh, I do. I do. So maybe I'll keep asking it. Uh, so then Cersei and Jamie have this conversation uh, about. Uh, their mother and about the prophecy and and Cersei says like hey it's okay like you couldn't have done anything because the prophecy from last episode season one I'm sorry season five episode one uh, declared that she would lose all of her children uh, and that has come to pass right gold will be their crowns and gold their shrouds Tommen is still alive yeah. So <laughs> did, now did, uh-huh. I forget. Did the prophecy say all of the children would yeah. die? Like Tommen is also yeah. doomed as well. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. According uh, to the prophecy. Well, so far they're the pro- the, yeah. <laughs> the, so far that prophecy is is batting a hundred percent. So uh, we'll see how that plays out for for Tommen, who we don't meet this episode actually. So uh, and then Jamie has this moment where he's like, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna get those guys back." Uh, any uh, any thoughts on this scene? I, I thought it was very. Uh, very good. I mean, you just, you're really on Jamie and Cersei's side. This, that's what this makes this show so brilliant. You've seen these people do horrifying things, and now you're rooting for them. It's amazing. Amazing feeling. It's interesting. The, Jamie going to Dorne last season, there was that whole part with Braun where he was talking about you know the woman he loves, and we knew and Braun knew he was talking about his sister. And I think... I'm just rooting for Jamie not to be in this relationship anymore. So to see him solidify his bond with Cersei, um, you know, that's not my favorite move for him. 
like sibling support, sure, but you know the rekindling of the Lannister love flame. Uh, I'm not sure I endorse. Well, so, I'm I mean, I'm okay. I'm going to take a bold statement. Incest, not so much. Mm. That's mm. my bold, bold, yeah, statement. Too so. far, too far, Joanna. <laughs> How intolerant. <laughs> I'm going to skip forward a little bit just because the plotline is related. Uh, we cut to. Uh, Alaria, Sand, and Prince Doran, they're kind of having this lovely chat in the courtyard. It's all very civil. Uh, and everything seems to be going great. But, of course, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Now, let me just stop right here before I even continue and say one of the big questions for me was uh, what would happen with Jamie Lannister finding out about Marcella's death, like her dying right in front of him, given that the boat is literally within eye eyesight, eye shot, whatever, visual distance of Dorne. Wouldn't he turn the boat around, figure out who killed... Like, there could have been this whole adventure about him trying to find his daughter's killer. Like, well, well, wouldn't he have figured out that, hey, something that happened to her, like she was poisoned in some way, anything? Um, none of that took place. You know, he just... Apparently, he just kept going. Uh, and... Well, I have to tell you this much. The last thing I wanted was for Jamie Lannister to go back to Dorne. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you understand why I might be a little baffled by that, right? Like that, yeah. like he they just left, and then all of a sudden his daughter mysteriously dies. He's not going to stop the ship and turn it around. Uh, it, it's not like they're midway through. They just literally ten minutes ago had just left. You know? Um, oh yeah, I've, I've been talking about this. <laughs> For all summer, I was like, "What is Jamie going to do?" And it turns out, nothing. Just keep sailing, nothing. Um, he did nothing. The <laughs> the production game. So there's a site called MakingGameOfThrones.com, and I don't believe this is a spoiler because it's a thing that was in the show. I don't think they're ever going to actually show it, but the scroll that Prince Duran gets, which is actually from Jamie Lannister, is on this production diary, and it has words in it that actually help. Kind of explain what happened. Do you want me to read it right now? Yeah, sure. And if you don't want to hear those words on the scroll, then uh, skip forward. But yeah, I want to hear it. Okay, so it says, The Princess Marcella died by poison on a return journey. I suspect Ilaria, not you. But my sister will demand war. I doubt Ilaria's head will uh, appease her, but it's a start. Along with your niece, along with your nieces. Your son cannot stay in King's Landing. I'm sending him back on the same ship. Hmm. Well, that definitely would have helped with the explanation of what the hell Tristane was doing. Yeah. Uh, but and, like the the sandstakes appearing on the boat, which is in King's Landing Harbor, and Tristane's on the belly of the boat that Marcella died on, and the sandstakes appear and they kill him. Special effects are really cool. The dialogue was terrible, but um, everyone watching the show, almost everyone watching the show, is like, "Wow." Where What's are they? The, yeah, where what, are they? What the what fuck they, is happening? How are those women there when they were on the docks <laughs> on Dorne last time we saw them with Alaria and Tyene? Like, how did this happen? Yes, yes, of course there are explanations. Yes, they could have caught the next boat to King's Landing. Yes, maybe Tristan <laughs> has been sitting in that boat in the harbor for a couple days, giving them time to get there. Yes, maybe they have ninja skills and they crept on the boat. But there was, there's just a gap there in the storytelling that made it m- messy. Yeah, not like I said, not a plot hole, plot no. gap. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Angry Joetta is my favorite Joetta. <laughs> oh, I hate this Dorn stuff. <laughs> the Dorn stuff is pretty <laughs> atrocious. So, okay, so you're jumping ahead a little bit, but basically, uh, Alar- you know, Prince Doran reads that t- scroll, which uh, I think is like a fun little production Easter egg. I don't think that explanation was ever meant to 
appear on the show because it raises a lot of questions itself. Like, how did uh, Jamie know it was poison? And if he did know it was poison, why didn't he turn the ship around? You know, like, all these questions that the show is not ready to answer. So, uh, you know, I think that's a fun little Easter egg for the production thing, but I, I understand why they didn't put it in the show because it just raises all these things. So then uh, Prince Doran reads it, and before he can even react... Uh, they kill uh, that guy, his big bodyguard. What's his name? Dario Hota. Which is a very ignominious death for that guy. Uh, preposterous. <laughs> there have been there have been like a couple great book warriors that were never that great in the show. Like Dario Hota really only held an axe. All, like all next season, he he got in one fight. He didn't do much, right? He looks badass, but he didn't do much. So you're forgiven if you don't know that he's like a really impressive fighter. But, but you, but you are not for. I mean, you are reasonable for concluding that uh, he should not have been killed with like a a pocket knife. <laughs> you know, like he, yeah, I mean, he should not have been felled by a spoon. You know, like it's it's. Hey. Tyene might have had poison on that thing, but like he just went down with one little prick. Like that is the fastest acting poison, and I just I could not believe that. I could not believe Tyene took down Area Hotel with one tiny little stab. Not just, even a fight. Not even a fight. It wasn't even. Was she even messy. Like, couldn't she have like spider monkeyed on his back and like choked him? Like something, <laughs> something a little effort. I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah, agreed. It was pretty bad. And then, uh, but that's not where the baffling decisions uh, stop, nope, Joanna. Nope, uh, nope, so Ilaria <laughs> is saying, hey, the, the people of Dorne, uh, they don't believe in your leadership anymore. That's news to us. Like, we have no idea. Is that hinted at in the show at all? No, I don't think in the show very much. Except for the way the guards don't stop her. Yeah, and they're all looking at uh, – well, yeah, obviously, I mean, like, I'm saying previous to now has it been. No, no, I, I mean, I don't think so, no. This is like one season's worth of yeah. uh, of plot stuffed into literally like two minutes, uh, and it it doesn't work. It 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 doesn't work. This this death is meant to be brutal, and you're meant to be shocked by how she cruelly murders him. And it is very graphic. There's a lot of blood, but beyond the visceral level of violence, there is nothing about the situation that moves me. That is emotionally justified. Uh, that the show earns in any way. What do you think? Am I being too harsh? <laughs> Not harsh enough. I think that <laughs> they just, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure what they're going to do with Dorn going forward. There's some book stuff that they could still wrap in. I don't know. But it kind of feels like they knew that everyone hated Dorn last year, and so they just murdered Dorn in front of us. Because this is not book stuff at all. They like, <laughs> like they just killed these two characters. It's crazy that they did this. Um, and <laughs> the the worst part is the Prince the Prince Duran, Alexander Siddig, because, the, you know, I'm going to say this because I, I don't think that it spoils anything, any direction that they could possibly go. But to say that, like, you know, Ilaria calls him out for being too passive and not doing anything. But what you find out in the books is that all the whole time Prince Duran was plotting, like, he had patience, he was calculating, and the Sand Snakes are, you know, violent and impetuous, and he was plotting, and he's got, like, a couple great speeches about how he's had this plan this whole time and we're just not going to see any of that so they someone tweeted this at me and i'm sorry i don't have the attribution right now but they were like it's bold storytelling to take a character from the book who pretends to be boring and just make him actually boring in the show and murder him and just cut his plot off and i don't know if they're gonna they're not gonna give some version of it to alaria because alaria certainly hasn't been scheming something for years and years and years so it's just the dorn thing is a mess 
in, in the best possible scenario, they're done with it, but I don't think they are. So. Well, yeah, and then the indignities continue when Obara and Nymeria show up to kill Tristane. And like you said, where are these people? So uh, the answer is they're in the boat in the King's Landing Harbor. Tristane is there painting the little eye thing, presumably for Marcella, right? And so so romantic. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know or don't remember, those little eye things, like they put them over dead people's bodies when they uh, bury them or, or when they're displaying them or whatever. I'm not sure about the... The funereal pas- passages of uh, of Westeros completely, but yeah, they they are for dead people. And uh, two of the Sand Snakes show up, and they are the definition of trying too hard, in my opinion. <laughs> like it just it is all this mugging, this horrible dialogue. We're here to kill you, blah blah blah. It's just it feels like it comes out a completely different show, and it it, it adds you know more badness to an already very rough plot line um what do you think of this scene yeah <laughs> like i said before i thought the special effect of the spear going through tristane's face yeah that was pretty good was, was pretty, pretty good yeah that's that's my highlight well here's the thing jonah robinson you know what could have prevented all this uh like, like what could have helped all these people out what's that texting you know why <laughs> because a lot of this a lot of the misunderstanding of this show come out of uh, people not having information. I mean, they have ravens in the show, but uh, they a don't. Raven have... is so slow. Uh, well, and apparently they don't have ravens on the boat, and we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, texting is a great way to communicate because it's fast. You can do it surreptitiously, you know. So if you're in a high council meeting and someone's texting you that the dude next to you has betrayed you, you know, you can look at the text without uh, like even endangering yourself. It's a great format and. Uh, a company that helps to change the way businesses use texting is called Textline at Textline.com. And basically what Textline does is they let you set up a phone number if you are a business and uh, people can then text that number. So there's many businesses where people would love to text that number. Uh, but they can't because you know a lot of businesses are use landlines, right? Like they, you can't text the landline, um, and no one wants to just set up their business phone as a <laughs> as a cell phone. So uh, what Textline does is they create a a number that people could actually text, and it's uh, it's. It's something you can access as a business. Like there's this dashboard uh, where you can read all these texts and resolve the issues for the text, you know, one by one, and and text back to people. And it's super convenient. And there's all these cool features too, uh, like, you, you know, John Robinson. Let's say you're running an amazing business. How many texts are you getting a day? How many texts? Just just throw out a number. Uh, tw- an amazing business? Yeah. A hundred. hundred texts per, per, let's say, hour, right? You're getting a yes. hundred texts per hour. Yes. And it's, a lot of them are the same questions. It's like, where is, where are, where is your business located? Um, what, what are your open hours? That kind of stuff. Uh, well, TextLine allows you to set up shortcuts to answer frequently asked questions. So uh, if you like run a restaurant, most of your phone calls are for the same few questions. Hours, menu, where are you located? You can set up auto uh, responses or you know like short responses you could easily text people back it's a great way to interact with people who might be your customers and i know it's a great way john robinson because uh we set up a text line that that people can actually text uh and i asked them on uh, our facebook page facebook.com to text 
304-982-7971 with their reactions to this week's Game of Thrones. And boy, did people deliver. Dozens of people texted, and it was awesome. Uh, and, you know, it, like a lot of people uh, s- like commented or, or tweeted saying like, oh, well, why would I use this instead of like Twitter or email? Hey, guess what? Some people don't want to use Twitter or email. Like everyone has a phone, uh, and you can just – you don't even need a smartphone. You can just use a feature phone to text, you know? So it really opens up like who can actually send messages. Um, but, uh, yeah, some people texted, and I'm going to read some of their responses. Uh, Boke and Cone wrote in, no ravens on the boat, but they do have sand snakes. Dorne continues to be one large plot hole, unbowed, unbent, unlogical, which I thought was pretty great. I mean, technically, I think the word is illogical, but uh, fair enough. That I understand you got to pre- preserve the alliteration there. Uh, very good. Uh, I agree completely. Uh, Megan of House French texted us, Ugh, the sand snakes are back and stinking of sucky writing, sad acting, and general stupidity. And wait, was Tristan just chilling on the boat painting eyes for his dead girlfriend? Was there no guard for this guy whose family killed his betrothed? Did the sand snakes row themselves alongside the ship and just pop up? Shoddy, shoddy, shoddy. They need a shame wall. Thanks, Megan of House Ranch. Um, uh, do, we, do we agree with that, John Robinson? I do. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty spot on. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm going to read one more of these texts uh, at the end of this episode. But wanted to thank everyone for texting in. And uh, uh, some of you might be curious. You, you've heard all this awesome stuff about TextLine. Uh, and you, you might be willing to try it out. Well, we have a special offer for people who listen to this podcast. Uh, TextLine offers a, a free month uh, a trial for anyone who tries it out for a limited time if you use textline.com slash cast of kings that's textline.com slash cast of kings uh you can get an additional month off uh with a promo code that will be applied immediately so you already get 30 days but if you use textline.com slash cast kings get an additional month off definitely go try them out guys it's a really cool service and if you have anything like um a podcast or a business, or uh, an organization, or anything that you want to, uh, you know, organize like a lot of messages really easily. Textline.com/castofkings is a really good way to go. Uh, John Robinson, you've used this service, right? You, you popped on, checked it out. Pretty cool, right? I did it's really great. I really, really loved it because it org like it organizes all the texts and uh, most, you can mark. Important- you can mark when you resolve something. I just uh, the interface. I'm- <laughs> It all doesn't sound genuine, but I do mean it. The interface is really, really uh, easy to use. I love yeah, it. it's very intuitive. And and you know, one question people might have is like, why would you? Why would you just have people text a phone number? And the reason is because like mo- like tons of people, multiple people, your whole business can log in to the back end and uh, and view all the texts and like resolve them one by one. So it's it's way better than using a regular cell phone. Um, so textline.com slash cast of kings. Uh, really appreciate them sponsoring uh, this podcast this season and uh, yeah feel free to send a text to 304-982-7971 if you want to share your opinions uh, we may read them on later episodes in addition to text line uh, kickstarter backers also help make this episode possible and we got to thank a bunch of people right joanna we are you guys i've been staring at this one name for five minutes and <laughs> i haven't cracked it yet so i see which name you're talking about and it is pretty <laughs> Do you? i think are so. you sure i okay. think so go ahead 
Okay, I'm going to start with the great Dustin Rolls. Uh, Dirk Jacquemin, Al Stewart, Mike Cosentino, uh, George Ankers, Osama from Oman, Adam Wells from BeyondTheShieldPodcast.com. I should point out that Adam is actually uh, helping me do some work on this podcast as well, so we really appreciate his work. Uh, Lawrence Agleton, uh, Joe... Have <laughs> <laughs> Joe Liver Liver Sedge Liver Chedge Liver Kedge. Yeah. I don't know. Liver Sedge. That sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I can't crack this one. Yeah, okay. the pronunciation guide was a little confusing, but yeah. Okay. Nick Colbert, uh, Zach Flanagan, Frankel, Chris W, Sean Welsh, Jessica Pippen, um, Emer Ryan, Benjamin Jacoby. Um, Elias Dorve. <laughs> he said, say it how you want, so I made it French. Uh, Michael Horton, Jesse Jackson from Set Lusting Bruce, Ryan Anderson, Corey Etienne Gagne, Ankar Gill, Dan Jenkins, Brian Myers. Thank you all, and thank you especially for the people that I we've been reading for like four years. Yeah, the, those are, these people are awesome. There's been a bunch of repeat uh, customers, quote unquote. Thanks to Svein Eric Freisa. That's uh, That's my pronunciation. I'm sticking with it. It's great. Edward Kelly, Anne Moreau, Mark Rodriguez, Robin Suter from Switzerland, Enola Z, Nathan Hale Sargent, Nils Hermans, John Mitchell, Swerir Sigfusen, mm. Jamil Payne, Hamish McIver, John Davenport, Gigi Agis. Oh, that's horrible. Sorry. Gigi Agis. Agis? Yeah, Agis. Dominic Waite. Uh, no, Dominic Witt. Yeah, Dominic Witt, yeah. Uh, Joey Zimniak, Frank Roan, Megan Sassman, Aaron Morgan, Trey Smith, Evan Zeller, Mick Swagger the second, the Mickening, and Vito Salvaggi. Thanks so much to all of our Kickstarter backers. Thanks to textline.com uh, slash Cast Kings for sponsoring us and making this episode possible. And Let's, yep. Joe Liversedge, if you want to give me some feedback on that name pronunciation, you just let me know. <laughs> yeah, and we should also point out, this is a great opportunity to point out that, by the way, please... Fill out your Kickstarter survey, uh, those of you who backed us uh, and want us to read your name correctly or incorrectly. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. So I, I sent out a Kickstarter survey asking you to pronounce your name, how to pronounce your name, and uh, please respond to that so we can get the, uh, going on that. One other thing I wanted to mention, uh, a few other people backed us for Kickstarter stuff. We will be in touch uh, for the personalized uh, Skype calls and the bonus episodes. So sit tight. Uh, we're just trying to get through this season, and then we will get to uh, fulfilling your rewards with all speed. All right. Uh, so a few more scenes from this week's episode of Game of Thrones. I skipped a scene where uh, the Septa was reading to Marjorie from the Westeros equivalent of the Bible. Uh, and can you remind us what crimes Marjorie was accused of from last season that she's kind of uh, in, in jail for now? I lying to protect her gay brother, Sir Loris, because uh, his paramour, Oliver, came on the stand. I mean, and, and exposed them all, remember, with that conveniently placed birthmark, I think, was what took down House Tyrell. Mm, uh, it was pretty, mm. pretty interesting. We should also thank uh, the people in the chat room. Uh, we're broadcasting this podcast live right now. Uh, and we'll generally be doing that on Monday nights if people want to tune in. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, we'll tell you our Twitter names at the end of the episode if you want to tune in. But, uh, yeah, thanks to people on the chat room for helping us out with that one. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Marjorie is in trouble for perjury. And uh, she is in the situation that Cersei was in last season. One of the 
interesting parts of this episode uh, and also all this High Sparrow stuff is kind of seeing how these people behave uh, when they are brought so low. Like we, we've seen them in the finest of garments for the entire show's run and then seeing them laid low like this and seeing how they behave is really fascinating. Marjorie demands to see her brother. She demands to be let loose because she's the queen. Uh, and High Sparrow comes in and says some ominous stuff to her, uh, basically saying like, "Hey, you still have a, you've you've already admitted to some sin. You've said no one's perfect, but uh, you still have a long way to go." Do you have any? Uh, if assuming you don't actually know the outcome, do you have any thoughts on what he means by that or what his intentions for her are? I no comment. All right, fair enough. Uh, I I understand what you're. I'm reading you loud and clear, Joanna. <laughs> um, so anyway. Then we cut to Marine, uh, Varys and Tyrion are walking the streets and talking about how, man, this city feels deserted, things don't seem to be going right, uh, and they see this graffiti on the wall that, I don't know about you, Joanna, it just ripped me right out of the show. <laughs> what, did you, what did you think of this graffiti? The graffiti, I think, Because it's in English? Well, firstly, because it's in English, and secondly, because it is... It sounds like a kid wrote it. Uh, it it's what? Is, what is it? It's like um, maybe a kid did write it. Have we seen Ollie this whole episode? Mm, no. So mm. I'm just saying maybe he's besmirching the walls of Marine. As it well. says uh, kill the masters, and then yeah. uh, Misa is a master. <laughs> so it's like a rejoinder to that. I just thought it, it sounded a little bit. The, the syntax just sounded a little off to me. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I don't know, uh, just a very, very minor issue. Uh, other things happen with uh, Tyrion and Varys talking as well. We see uh, one, like a, a male equivalent of Melisandre uh, basically preaching the word of uh, the god of fire, right? Rolor. Uh, yeah, and then um, the ships are burned. There's all this commotion when the ships are burned and no one's going back to Westeros anytime soon, which for me was kind of an anti-moment just because I had no... Like, people take so long to move from place to place in the show, I never thought that they were... It was even remotely possible that they were going to be heading to uh, to King's Landing. Um, but, uh, yeah, what did you think of this whole scene between Varys and Tyrion? Um, I thought it was pretty ridiculous to think that they could walk through the town and not be recognized, g- mm-hmm. given um, Tyrion's stature. Mm-hmm. That was, like, a pretty shoddy disguise. Um, I liked to see how much Varys know, like, how much Tyrion thinks he knows and how much Varys actually knows. I thought that was interesting. I'm curious to know who is watching them, right? Because we get a point of view shot through, yeah. like, a great... Um, and, yeah, Danny's fleet is toast, so as Tyrion said, I guess they're not going to Westeros anytime soon. To right, Westeros. which the- theoretically they would do if they're going to seize the throne, right? Right. And I think that, I mean that's what Tyrion was trying to talk to Daenerys about in terms of what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, speaking of marine-related stuff, we have Jorah and Daria looking for Danny. Uh, and they find the ring. We also see Jorah's grayscale is worse. Uh, from last season, he was attacked by those stone men. Goat? Ram. Do you think our friend got him? I don't know anything else that can melt a ram's horn. We're on the right path, then. Perhaps she's tired of being queen. I don't think she likes it very much. It's too smart to like it. 
Maybe she's flown somewhere else, somewhere far away from men like us. I've been all over the world. There's no escaping men like us. There's no escaping her, eh? Keep coming back. Why? You know why. Isn't it frustrating? Wanting someone who doesn't want you back. Of course it is. You're a romantic. I admire that. Sometimes I look at you and I think, so that's what I'll be like when I grow old. If you grow old. If I grow old. I hope I do. I want to see what the world looks like when she's done conquering it. So do I. I don't want to sound too neg- negative on this episode, and hopefully my, like, you guys are still hearing me say my glowing things about Brian and Sansa, but this dialogue between Jorah and, and um, Dario is so stilted. When it's like, hope I live long enough, can't wait to see her conquer the world. Me too. I mean, it was it was so weird. It was really weird. Those are great actors. And I, I don't know, maybe it's hard to do dialogue on horseback. I don't know what to tell you. Hmm. It didn't really I, like, bother me as much. I actually thought that moment was nice when he said, like, uh, you know, like, you're like an older version of me. You know, I, I thought that was pretty uh, amusing. But uh, anyway... They find the ring uh, as an indication. I think it's actually quite plausible how they find it because of all these horses like looping around this one location, uh, and yeah, that they they know that she's been taken. You know, so she they got to go find her. That was also similar to like the Tyrion and Varys thing, where Tyrion thinks he knows things, Varys actually knows things. That's how I felt with watching Jorah and Dario, where Dario was talking a big game, but Jorah is the one who did actually all of the tracking. So. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. With grayscale to boot. So he's just the best is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, and so th- then we see what Danny's up to. She's getting uh, led away by these Dothraki who talk to her. And uh, I-, I actually thought this was pretty awesome because they are demeaning her. And she does not respond because she knows it's a strategic advantage for them not to know that she understands her language. Uh, at least that's how I interpreted it. Uh, and, and she reveals herself only when it's necessary to stop horrible things from happening to her. Uh, she has this conversation with a new call uh, and explains that you know she's the widow of Call Drogo, and you know it's actually, there's actually kind of this funny exchange where uh, they're talking about like what's better than seeing a naked woman for the first time, and uh, there's all these things that are better. Uh, I thought it was pretty amusing, uh, but then it's revealed that hey, you're not going to be raped. But you're going to be taken to Via Stothrak, which is where all the widows of calls go. Um, and I don't think we know that much about Via Stothrak in the show, but I'm not sure about that, Jonah. Is there anything you can reveal about it at this point? Or well, they went there in season one. It's where is, is that Den- where the wedding happened? Or no, it's where Daenerys ate the horse heart. Gotcha. Um, and the Dush Colleen is the name of the widows. And they were there in that scene with the horse heart. They just didn't make a big deal of it. But, like, the Dush Colleen were there when she ate that horse heart in the Vysothrak. What we know from Vysothrak, you might remember from our recent season one rewatch, is that you're not allowed to have any weapons inside Vysothrak. That's and right. So that's, can't, why that's why, uh, what's his Viserys, name? Yeah. Viserys got in so much trouble for having a sword. So that's right. where they're going, in theory. Uh, did uh, Khal Drogo technically violate that decree given that he uh, melted gold and poured it on Viserys' head or was that technically not a weapon? What do you think? I feel like that was a workaround. <laughs> <laughs> That's a loophole that they just poured <laughs> that gold right through. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, this seems to be ominous and I think the reason is just because it means like she's 
I, I guess my question is like where my mind goes is what are the implications for her? Like, what is it? Assuming she even gets there, which I highly doubt. What does that mean for her life? You know, um, is she going to be completely ineffectual and not able to do anything for the rest of her days? You know, like what does that mean to be uh, a Dosh Colleen? I mean, she certainly didn't seem to want to go. And like his wives were his wives were the, which who were like the best cattiest ladies. Um, <laughs> they were smirking at her. They're like, oh, you got to go hang out with the widows. Good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> so it certainly doesn't seem like anywhere she would want to go. Right. No. And she's like, yeah, is Maureen like on the way to Viastothrak? Can you like drop me off maybe? <laughs> she offered him all the horses ever. Yeah. He could just take her home. And he's like, not so much. No. Nope. These, these are our rules. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> kind of a, uh, uh, it, I, I don't know. Not a deus ex machina, but it just was like, whoa, uh, that is a, uh, like, did not know about that rule about the widow of a call. Was, I don't think that was introduced until this point, right? No, it's in the first book. It's but, in the book. It's in the book, yeah. but not in the show. So, uh, anyway, only two more scenes left in this episode. Uh, Arya and, and her, uh, let's say, trainer fight in the street. Arya's completely blind. They're in Bravos, right? Is where they are? Yeah, so she's on the streets of Bravos begging. They fight. She's probably going to come back and beat her up some more. Any thoughts on this whole plot line? Um, it's miserable. I can't <laughs> wait to see Arya, I don't know, either get out of there or uh, elevate to the next level of her training. We don't like seeing Arya in a situation where she's getting beat up on, you know? Right, and she's right. one of the, one of the people we rooted for in the show. So uh, not to mention there's all this stuff with the man with no face and the people with a thousand faces and all that stuff and just a bunch of mystical stuff with no explanation. And it just doesn't seem like they're any close to explaining what the hell is going on. I mean we have some vague ideas of, hey, like you need to go through – like you, your, your face – the face is pretty much poisoned to you because you used it incorrectly. You're not ready to be no one yet. You're not ready to be an assassin. Maybe this is part of that training but – None of it's explained or articulated in a very clear way. I'm hoping we'll get some more clarity, but I'm not. Uh, I don't think it's very likely. So, and finally, uh, the final scene of this episode that's very talked about is uh, Alistair Thorne comes and confronts Davos and uh, Jon Snow's men. They say, "Come out, you know, with your hands up, and you'll all live." Davos is doubtful that that's going to happen, but he says, "Hey, we have a secret weapon, Melisandre." Uh, you and- forgot about Davos's whole hilarious mutton joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Davos Liam Cunningham is just doing such a good job as Davos. He is always, so great, yeah. But he's so great in this episode, and and I think this is not a spoiler because I don't know, but I think all of us maybe should be worried about Davos just because whenever you start to really, really love and root for a character on Game of Thrones, isn't that when you should start to worry about them? That's, I swear, not a spoiler, just an observation. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people want Davos to be the the person who becomes in charge of Castle Black. You know, I've seen that bandied about as, as a possible plot, but given Game of Thrones history, I think your suggestion is much more likely that he will be killed horribly just when we really think he's, he's been an awesome character. Um, and so he, you know, Davos invokes Melisandre and that's big for Davos, right? Because he has been opposed to Melisandre for the whole series until now, pretty much. Right. Uh, and so for him to want to resort to asking for Melisandre's help, 
That is a, a huge shift. It shows. I, can, I think it kind of shows just how desperate a situation he's in and how willing he is to bend his morals. Uh, so I thought that was a nice moment when he implies, like, hey, we should ask Melisandre for help. And then the final scene. He doesn't yet know what Melisandre did. Oh, uh, you mean with Stannis and uh, and causing Shireen. Stannis to kill Shireen and, and burning his, his little buddy. Yeah, that's true. That's a, shoe, that's a shoe that's waiting to be dropped. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be fun when that happens. Uh, and then this final scene uh, where Melisandre strips off her clothes and sees herself in the mirror as she truly is uh, before slinking away to bed. This has been a much talked about scene in the episode. And uh, I'm wondering, what was your reaction to this, Jonah? Oh, man, I loved it. That was great. I mean, we should mention that she takes her necklace off, which seems to be sort of the trigger for her transformation. Um, well, actually, some people, intrepid viewers have brought up that in well, the scene. Well, actually, Dave Chen, I wrote about this on VanityFair.com. Yeah, no, no. I, 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 I was setting you up for that, Joanna. Okay. I was setting you up. But people have said, hey, there was a scene where Melisandre was naked earlier uh, with Solis, uh, Stannis' wife, and she was still... Looking like Chris Van Houten. So what was up with that? Like, was it really the necklace? And Joanna, what is the reaction to that? Well, no. So, sorry. <laughs> I, I regret my salty demeanor. Um, oh. she, she, yeah, in season four, she's in the bathtub. She does not have the necklace on. And right. she's naked and looking super sexy. And some people, this is actually an old theory because book readers had suspected that, that Melisandre was old. And that her power was tied to her necklace. So when they saw that scene back in season four, they were like, what's the deal? So being the really, really <laughs> intrepid book readers that they are, they made up the scenario where if you rewatch that scene, it kind of seems like maybe Solise is actually looking at uh, Melisandre as she really is. And it's it, that's an entirely possible interpretation of that scene because she looks kind of horrified. She keeps kind of like staring at her in the mirror. She's like horrified and intrigued. Melisandre's talking a lot about the flesh and what it gets her and all this stuff. So I honestly think it's just a show inconsistency, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a fun theory to sort of explain it away. So Jonathan uh, from North Carolina texted in a response to this final scene uh, through textline.com, he said, The ending did not feel like gotcha shock value. I felt it. Does this give justification to all the dozens of scenes where Melisandre disrobes seemingly without reason throughout the series? Maybe, maybe not. A female character who's shown full frontal to that extent could come off as exploitive or pandering to a certain audience five seasons in. With this ending, though, with Melisandre fully stripping down vis-a-vis the necklace, the writers have given something human to a character that almost became comical in her ethereal, seductive preternaturality. They've given her vanity, they've given her weakness, they've given her cause for survival, and at a point in the series where so many of our heroes are at their lowest rungs, it says something that the person we feel the most for is one whom, mere episodes ago, personally and with pride, brought forth the incineration of a defenseless handicapped child. <laughs> End quote. Uh, great text from Jonathan. Thanks for sending <laughs> that to us. And uh, yeah, I mean, Melisandre has had to contend with the uh, upending of her prophecy with Stannis. I mean, it it really felt like she believed in him. You know, I don't think she was acting on uh, on any level. I don't think she was manipulating him. It really felt like she bought her whole shtick. And uh, so she's confronting that. She's confronting that she just made this dude burn his daughter and, and you know, his wife hanged herself. And then now he's dead. All that mess she did, basically. 
and she's looking at herself as she truly is, you know, uh, theoretically incredibly old, like hundreds of years old or however old she is. I think it's 400. 400 years old. There's been like some conflicting things, but both like apparently Kreese Van Houten in season one told the actor who played Maester Crescent that she's 400 years old. And then director Jeremy Podeswa, who did this episode, told Entertainment, he said to Entertainment Weekly, 400 years old. So I'm going to go with 400 years old. Yeah, it's a really powerful moment. I don't think a lot of people saw it coming. And the reveal is very effective. And you really see this person who throughout the whole show has been riding pretty high. You know, she's been eating poison and surviving and burning people alive, all this stuff. Uh, she's been on top of the world and then brought incredibly low, you know, and it kind of mirrors uh, Cersei's plotline as well in some ways where, you know, these people who are very proud uh, and have all this finery and and the accoutrement of royalty uh, all of a sudden just being humbled beyond belief. Uh, I, yeah, it's a very powerful ending. So uh, any other thoughts on the ending or any general thoughts on the episode, Jenna Robinson? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, you, you touched on this in terms of Chris Van Houten has been one of the number one sources of, uh, you know, female nudity on the show. And the fact that she knew and the showrunners knew um, since the beginning that she was actually like a crone uh, in a hot lady body is very subversive. It's very interesting because there's a lot of like really deeply shitty sexist jokes going around about, about this. But I mean, you have to, you as a viewer have to confront that this woman that you've been ogling for several seasons um, is actually quite elderly and we all get old. Hey, what about that? And like, it happens to all of us. And, and it just, I don't know. It's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant to me. Uh, And I thought the special effects looked really good. you know, they put Chris Van Houten in, um, prosthetics and a wig and then sort of matched her head onto this actual old woman's body um and it, it looked incredible yeah. It was, yeah i thought it was amazing pretty good overall thoughts on the episode um overall thoughts on the episode i liked it a lot except for dorn right <laughs> and mostly you know I, i've heard a lot of people complaining that not a lot happened this episode that's usually true of the game of thrones premiere episodes um usually we talk about table setting i would say more than even table setting i would say this is positioning certain chess pieces on the board to it, go also, in certain also, directions it's also re- resolving a, a bunch of the deaths that happen very recently in the show you know like the, there's all this stuff that happened in the last episode that needed to be dealt with in this episode i felt that it was almost kind of uh, a, a part two to uh, last episode more than it was even setting up new stuff, I felt. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in terms of premieres, I thought it was okay. It was it was pretty good. Uh, not the best of the premieres, you know, of the six premieres that we've had. I don't think it was the best one. But I don't think it was the worst one either. And I, Well, here's what I'll say. I think the highs... We're worth it. I mean, the highs, very specifically being that Bran and Sansa moment, were worth it. The Dorn stuff is just like, just please stop with Dorn. Is my is my request? Just, stop. just please stop with Cause, it because they can listen to your advice at this point when the show is in the can already. Uh, yeah, I agree though. The Dorn stuff is a is a flaming well, garbage fire. That's that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. Okay, so the the showrunners. <sighs> Gave us rather, they gave a few strident interviews to Entertainment Weekly. And one of them was about how 
they have not changed a single word of dialogue based on audience feedback. And I just, I personally as a human don't see how you can watch this episode and not see it as a reaction to a lot of the criticisms of last season. Examples. He, okay. Um, that that whole Dario and Jorah, I can't wait to see what the world looks like when a woman rules it. Or Alaria saying, like, weak men like you will never rule Dorne again. And, like, that sort of stuff. Like, this, there's just – you know that I like, quote-unquote, strong female characters. But I – it felt like pandering rather than actual course correction. The only thing that felt earned was Sansa and Brienne in that front. And the rest of it just felt like, oh, you want strong women? Well, we can give you a couple strong women. Look at these sand snakes. They're stabbing the shit out of men. I'm just like, no, Tyene Sand bringing out Area Hota with one little pinprick is not believable, interesting, compelling girl power to me. The mm. Danny stuff was, you know – her standing up to the call versus what happened to her in season one was a little interesting, but overall that, that felt like, or, or, you know, or Melisandre, like I really loved that final moment, but that is also seems to be directly addressing the like, Oh, you think we showed too many hot new chicks? Great. Here's this very old woman. Look at her. Do you know? That's, Uh that's how it felt like to me. And, and like, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that Weiss and Benioff are like pouring over every single criticism and tearing their hair out and like, oh no, how can we fix the show? But like, just some of the writing in this episode felt very clumsily directed towards those criticisms. Uh, I don't think what you're saying is implausible. I think it's it's quite plausible, uh, but it's not something I picked up when I was watching the show. I, I was more bothered by, like I said, some of the hand waving of how do the sand snakes show up in the boat, and that's never explained. And all this Doran stuff and Brienne, you know, finding Theon and Sansa in the in the uh, snow and all, all all these kind of little things that are just like okay, like they didn't really explain it. They just kind of or like you said, Jon Snow's body being preserved for some reason. Uh, those bother me more than that. But you know, I think we were we we are different people and we're attuned to different things. So uh, I, I, no, nothing you said strikes me as as off the mark. Uh, the one thing I actually wanted to mention that we didn't mention in the course of this episode of the podcast was just um, uh, that the Bolton storyline seems to be setting up for a confrontation at Castle Black, right? That Sansa and Theon and Brienne and Pod are theoretically heading to Castle Black because I think Jon Snow is there even though he's dead. Uh, Ramsay uh, Bolton thinks that they're heading to Castle Black, so uh, they're probably going to go there as well. And Davos is at Castle Black right now, along with Alistair Thorne. Feels like a lot of plot lines will converge at Castle Black this season. Um, so I wanted to just mention that because uh, we didn't talk about it during the episode. Uh, do you have anything that you're allowed to say in response to that? Or do you agree? Or I think all of the participants currently in... <laughs> no, I think most of the participants currently in the North will play a part. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Joanna. Most but not all. Most but not all. Back to uh-huh. the art, artful disguising of, uh, of the stuff. And it, it just it's definitely artful, for sure. Every time you do that, just just know that even though you might feel awkward saying it, I greatly appreciate it. <laughs> um, but yeah, Joanna is, is disguising you know, even the hint of, of any future plot points. So we greatly appreciate her uh, keeping those under wraps. And I think that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of A Cast of Kings. Uh, wow, so much to talk about, Joanna. It's been a lot of fun watching this episode talk with you about it today. Uh, tune in next week for more. In the meantime, Joanna Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? 
You can find me writing pretty much only about Game of Thrones these days on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Joe Wrote This. Um, and we also have a Twitter account as well, a cast of Kings on yeah. Twitter. Find yeah. us at facebook.com slash castkings as well. Email us at a castkings.gmail.com. Find all of my stuff at davechen.me uh, and also on Twitter at davechensky. That's davechensky. Thanks, thanks to Textline for sponsoring us this week. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you guys next week on A Cast of Kings.